Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us grace in this time as we push back against one of the most sacred idols in this society and in this culture on the one that has a stranglehold upon these people and upon much of your visible church. Help us to be a people who are willing to be made uncomfortable for a cause that is greater than us, for your glory, for your namesake, that your name may be known amongst all the nations. Lord, give me grace as I expound these things to your people. Give them grace as they receive these things. And we do pray for those who are here who do not know you, that they would come to know you even today that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would shine light into their closed, dark souls, and that they would experience the kind of conversion that we see here in the text, which is the only kind, Lord. A magnificent example of it. But the only way in which you save people is to take them from light, or take them from darkness to light, as you did here with our brother Paul in the first century. Pray for your grace in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. In war, an attack from the enemy must at least be met with equal force or else the enemy is going to win. But then if the attack is only met with equal force, it'll simply be stalled. It won't be defeated. But if the objective is, as it should be, for the attacker to be defeated and the attack to be overcome, then it has to be overwhelmed. You have to take all available resources and marshal them against this front all material that you have of a military nature, all available manpower. And if the force being attacked actually wants to win, this is how they're going to respond. This is true of natural war. It's true of spiritual war as well. But to apply it distinctly to spiritual warfare, if Satan uses a certain implement of war with greater frequency and greater success, then the people of God need to expose and oppose whatever this particular offensive is, with greater frequency as well. And to even greater success utilizing the weapon of the word, or else we are going to lose that particular battle. And if indeed the devil has committed vast resources to a certain war front, then there can be no doubt that the outcome of that battle is of the greatest significance to Christ's kingdom. And that's why it's so significant to Satan. Understand that since Adam and Eve, this being 
has been destroying our race spiritually. And so surely he has learned how to appropriate resources to his greatest advantage in the time that has intervened from our first parents to now. And the text that we're going to examine today is in fact a response to one of Satan's most consistent and effective tools of warfare used against us. And that is the idol of comfort. Day and night we are inundated with this message that we must be comfortable at all costs. Do not be holy, be comfortable. Don't be naturally or spiritually productive, be comfortable. And especially don't subject yourself to suffering for any cause, irrespective how worthy under any circumstances, just be comfortable. This is the constant drumbeat of the devil. And sadly, it has largely drowned out God's message to his people. In a broader application of Solomon's words, just a little sleep, just a little slumber, but then poverty of all kinds and all types comes upon us like a thief. Moral poverty, spiritual poverty, an impoverished legacy, heritage, as well as poverty of the good old-fashioned monetary kind as well. Unless you think that I overstate the utility that this idol has had to Satan and still has to him, let's take a very brief tour of biblical history and we'll bring it up to contemporary circumstances in the end. First off, though, consider our father Adam. A prospect of standing firm against the devil's predations and his wife's foolishness made him uncomfortable, so he literally traded the souls of all his descendants for momentary ease. Another example would be Esau trading his birthright for the comfort of a single meal. Abraham inadvertently spawned Islam through Ishmael because he did not stand up to his wife and say, no, the Lord has decreed a plan and we will honor it. We will not come up with a carnal counterfeit of our own. Think about Lot. His whole life was about comfort. The big city was so satisfying to him and his then modern social sensibilities that he was willing to destroy his wife and his children to maintain that big city life, and brother, did he destroy them. Another good example would be Eli, the priest. He had sons. Unfortunately, his sons were also sons of the devil, and his God was in many ways comfort, so he let his sons defile the temple. And God, big G, judged him for it in the form of a broken neck as he fell off the back of his own chair. The people of Israel are, of course, uh, one of the great cautionary tales when it comes to this. They were to be holy and they were to be distinct in every way, dress, diet, and especially religion. And yet they just kept drifting back into the practices of the nations because being holy is uncomfortable. Well, just going with the grain is, of course, very comfortable. And then fast-forwarding through a myriad more Old Testament examples, Peter caved to the Judaizers because being, as Paul said, a man-pleaser was a more comfortable way to live than being a God-pleaser. And then fast-forwarding again, this time to the modern visible church, we have our well-known doctrine, our 11th commandment, Netflix and chill. And indeed we have. We have Netflixed and chilled hard. And that's why the pagans in our society are now tearing the breasts off of little girls and ripping out their wombs and castrating little boys. That is how comfortable we have become. On the effect of every one of those examples that I just gave you of pledging fealty to the God of comfort was sadly but predictably disaster. And actually the nature of the resultant disaster is especially ironic. Listen, 
in attempting to achieve comfort by pursuing it at the expense of righteousness, all of those men and we along with them have become vastly less comfortable. Certainly true of the first example that I gave you. Adam was in paradise. But to prevent that confrontation, he forsook paradise and spent the rest of his life toiling in the dirt by the sweat of his brow and watching all of his descendants, which was all the population of earth, be condemned because of his sin. Comfort for him was fool's gold or a mirage in the desert, as it always is with men who acquiesce to the thoroughly debunked theory that if you just go with the flow, it's all going to work out. Just give what the devil is due, and surely he will be good to you. Yet even with all of those examples and a hindsight knowledge of their outcomes, we still will not prostrate this Dagon before the one true God. And that's even that we also have positive examples affirming the virtue of forsaking comfort for truth and righteousness and love. And the greatest of these is obviously Christ and Him crucified. But ostensibly, Paul through Luke gives us many examples of this in what we call the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Now all the people in this list are very flawed. This is a a list, after all, of faith, not perfection. But in the areas that the Lord used them mightily, they chose faith over comfort, and that's why they're on this list. And they did so to the success of His people and ultimately to His glory. And faith requires sacrifice. It requires suffering, as the author of Hebrews records. And Abraham is one of these examples. Actually, he is the chief among them. Abraham, with his many faults, we already alluded to one, did eschew comfort to go to a place in the desert that he did not know in service to a God he'd only just met. Moses eschewed comfort by leaving the desert to return to a place that he very much did know in order to emancipate God's people from slavery. Rahab forsook the comfort of her vocation and her citizenship in order to become an enemy spy on behalf of God's people. And what we see in those examples is that there is, in fact, a positive and undeniable correlation between a lack of comfort in a Christian's life and how consequential that Christian ends up being for Christ. That is important enough for me to have you know that I'm going to repeat it. There is a positive and undeniable correlation between a lack of comfort in a Christian's life and how consequential that Christian ends up being for Christ. So on this basis, coasters are for preventing rings from forming on furniture due to condensation that comes from a glass. It's not a category of Christian. And this is the obvious truth that resonates from the testimonies of all our great patriarchs and matriarchs and resonates especially from the life and the ministry of Jesus. But this truth is seldom more evident than it is in the example of Saul. Never was a man, a mere man, less comfortable in this life And never was a mere man used more by God. And in the Damascus Road account, this lesson is communicated best by verses 15 and 16, which, as I said last week, we will be honing in on for the entirety of our time this week. And uh, what I did not know at the time is that this will take us into the next sermon that I have with you as well, because it became very apparent to me that this was going to require more than one week as I got going, and I don't want to skip anything here. I want you to understand the full impact of this. So as we begin, read with me again verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, so for this study, I have only one primary point to make, and that is the nature of Saul's suffering. I want you to know exactly what the Lord has in mind here. And then next time we will glean the reason for it as well as the outcomes of it. To our singular heading for today, let's start to work through Saul slash Paul's suffering. And I have assembled this list based upon what I at least believe to be uh, a least to greatest uh, breakdown. So we'll start with what I perceive to be his least cause of suffering, and then we will work our way up to what I believe to be the greatest. First off, Paul goes from profiteer to impoverished peasant. Paul wrote this familiar verse, Philippians 4.12. Anybody who's ever done a study of contentment has certainly run across this. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now that verse is very well known to us. But what needs to be acknowledged is that there's a line of demarcation there between uh, poverty and plenty between getting along with humble means and living in prosperity. And that line was the road to Damascus. The distinction is pre-conversion versus post-conversion. Prior to the events of Acts 9, Paul more than likely only ever knew in this life prosperity. Certainly in his time as an agent of the Sanhedrin, he was prosperous. Because ultimately, well, there is hell to pay for being a prosecutor of Christ's church, a persecutor. In the meantime, the perks were probably pretty great. For example, maybe he had a primary residence in Jerusalem and a vacation home in Damascus. But even if that wasn't the case, he was certainly a man of significant means. As we read in the New Testament, there's no doubt that to be a Jewish leader was to be wealthy, and Saul was one such leader. But after conversion, he's forced into the manual labor of tent making, which I think for him is an interesting profession because it becomes something of a metaphor for the man's life. Tents are transient, they're temporary, so is he. Paul, post-conversion, was just sort of perpetually passing through. He was in this city for a little while founding a church, and then he was in that city for a little while founding a church, or he was in this prison for a little while, or he was in that prison for a little while, but he was never in one place all that long. He was never, therefore, able to build wealth. He was always putting his need to make a living after the needs of Christ's sheep. Uh, At this point, we also need to establish what Paul's statement about humble means actually means. Well, obviously it means poor. But the problem for us is that we don't really know what poor is. We only know what American poor is. An American poor is typified by tightening the belt, say, from eating out ten times a month to only eating out five times a month. But understand that as a consequence of his calling, Saul is not going to be American poor. He is going to be what we would call in our day third world poor. But don't take it from me. Here he is in his own words. 1 Corinthians four eleven through 12. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. So in addition to his apostolic duties, he also happens to have a part-time job just to try to make ends meet. I mean, no big deal. He's only a chosen instrument of Christ to bear his name 
uniquely in the history of the church before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So what is, you know, an additional job to boot? Well, Paul is likely the one who stated the following about Moses, but this is equally as true if the concepts are applied to him. And the aforementioned Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 27, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, or in his case, chief son of the Sanhedrin, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ. That would be the sufferings of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt or first century Jerusalem to apply it to him, for he was looking to the reward. But by faith he left Egypt or first century Jerusalem, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. As I said, Americans have this great false god of comfort. But comfort's favorite demigod son, you might say, is prosperity. Because without prosperity, there really isn't a whole lot of comfort, is there? And so this is already far more than most in our culture would ever sacrifice for anything. Yet as I have already indicated to you, it is the least of Paul's suffering. But working our way up from least to greatest, the next greatest is Paul loses everyone and everything from his former life. And because I mentioned this last time, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But if we're to compile any list of his sufferings for Christ it at least needs to be acknowledged and remembered. Again, uh, Paul's relationships prior to conversion were based upon an abuse of the worship of Yahweh. That was foundational to all of them. We acknowledge that in order to advance to his status as Hebrews of Hebrews, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he said, would have almost certainly required a wife, and we see no mention of her, from this point forward, so she probably left him as a result of his conversion. Should also here be stated that he will have no biological paternity because he will devote himself entirely to Christ in a life of celibacy, and as anyone who is childless knows, that is its own source of pain, although he will have the greatest spiritual paternity of any saint ever, and we also acknowledge that, and we are among them. Next, Paul suffers profound physical distress. And the best passage on this is in 2 Corinthians 11 in verses 23 through 25 to start. He says that he was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Uh, From this alone, you may surmise that Paul had widespread soft tissue damage, that he had many broken bones that were surely never set back right. And so they caused him residual pain to the day that he died, and great pain, I am sure. There's also certainly lingering damage to organs. Perhaps his eyes were damaged in one or more of these beatings, and maybe that explains what he said to the Galatians when he said, see with what large letters I write. But there's much more than this. Continuing in verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Let Let me read that to you again. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That is breathtaking. That is unthinkable to suffer to that degree. Obviously, as all of you know, it was just one of those same beatings, juiced up quite a bit, that prevented Jesus from being able to carry his own cross all the way to Golgotha. Paul has received five of these beatings. On the basis of this, the skin on the man's back would have been repulsive. 
I do not believe you'd be able to stomach looking at it, nor I. I am sure that his body looked like somebody pushed him through a wood chipper. A whip has torn open the flesh on his back 195 times. I'm going to guess that when Paul slept at night, he either slept on his stomach or he slept on one of his sides because I don't think that he would have been able to sleep on his back. But still, this is not all. Verse 25, he goes on to say, three times I was beaten with rods. And an example of this is recorded in the book of Acts. It's a reference to the Roman practice of tying flexible rods together and in at least Paul's case, beating the victim with them. And as to the reason for the flexibility of these rods, anybody that's ever been uh, required to go and get a switch in order to be spanked with it uh, by one of their parents knows why. It has to be green, doesn't it? It has to be flexible because the flexible green ones hurt more. Same thing with this. That's why the rods were to be flexible. But still we are not through. As he says at the end of verse 25, once I was stoned. And Acts actually gives us the account of this as well. Acts 14, 18 through 20, we'll look there. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. In a sense, this is where Paul's murder of Stephen comes full circle. He who had led others to stone Stephen for standing with Christ has now himself been stoned for converting to Christ. But the difference is, obviously, that Paul survives it. That he gets back up. As a result of all of this in truth, it would not only have been the skin on Paul's back that would have been grotesque to behold, I think it would have been all of him. I think, for many people, it probably would have been disturbing just to look at the man when you're having a conversation with him. And in fact, he more or less states this. On account of the physical abuse being as severe as it was and the scars being as prevalent and evident, he says this to the Galatians, Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. You can all see it. So shortly after he has encouraged the quote-unquote truly faithful to mutilate their own genitals, if they have such confidence in the removal of the foreskin, he draws attention to his own mutilated bodies and says, is it not enough already? Have I not in your estimation filled out my own suffering for Christ sufficiently to where you can leave me be at least with this and I don't have to mediate these bickerings about the efficacy of the removal of your foreskin and its non-existent capacity to justify you before Christ? Perhaps in light of the extent of my sufferings, you can leave me be. Now the profound physical abuse that Paul suffered is one of the reasons why Luke was his traveling companion, if it was not the primary reason. Luke is a physician. Somebody who has endured what he has endured is not going to be able to get from point A to point B without the constant care of a doctor. And that is why Luke was there. One of the reasons. Now, surely this is a category would be considered the worst kind of suffering for many. But for Paul, I think it's about somewhere on the middle of the list. So to continue on, next form of his suffering is that he will be and was 
seven times in chains. And if you are wondering what verse states that Paul was imprisoned seven times, it is the first epistle of Clement, chapter 5 and verse 6, which is to say that it's non-canonical but still reliable. Clement of Rome was one of the early church fathers. He was a contemporary of the Apostle John, and in fact, he was discipled by the Apostle John, so that is a reliable figure. But Saul himself was also very clear about being imprisoned multiple times and in multiple places in his writings. He conveyed this. One such place is 2 Corinthians 6.55, where he speaks of his imprisonments, plural, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. And by the way, all those other conditions are consistent with being imprisoned, so one may assume that they are all connected to it. And with respect to the imprisonments themselves, uh, to be honest, some of these would have been considered relatively easy time as far as not being free goes. Uh, He would have been under house arrest. That wasn't the worst arrangement in the world. But at other times, he would have been in the worst arrangement in the ancient world, all of it. And this is nowhere more true than it was of Mamertine prison in Rome, which was his final destination. We have descriptions that have remained from antiquity about the sights, the sounds, and the smells in that place. No one had access uh, to any kind of facilities. So they defecated on themselves as they were chained to the floor in absolute darkness. They were tortured there. The smell was unbearable. The sounds were unbearable. It was not a place that was designed to cultivate rehabilitation. It was a place that was a final stop on your way to death. And it was from there that Paul was beheaded. Yet although Paul was often in chains, as he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God never was, was not imprisoned. In fact, it was during Paul's imprisonments that he wrote some of his epistles. So actually, his lost freedom was the instrument of letting God's word loose upon the world. And nevertheless, his suffering in prison was very, very real, and I think greater than his physical sufferings, and I think that that is demonstrable from what he wrote about his time in captivity. Second Timothy chapter 4, and we will skim. To Timothy, he says, while currently a prisoner there of Mamertine, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. And why does he need the comfort that comes with company? Because, as he goes on to say in verse 16, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, made it not be counted against them. And then again in verse 21, he says, make every effort to come before winter. Evidently and obviously, the isolation of prison is extremely painful for him. Why is this? Well, in part, it's because no soul can be in isolation and be well. We're made in the image of God, certainly no Christian soul. We were made for the body, and the body was made for us. We very much require it. But the effect, I think, would have been especially acute for a man with the following perspective. Listen to him, Philippians 1, 2 through 8. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. 
since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And perhaps it is as they say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. But if that is true, it is only true because it first makes the heart feel pain. Also consider with this that no one wrote more extensively on spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts encourage and comfort and edify saints within the body. He wrote extensively on the necessity of this for the Christian soul. Also because nobody understands and appreciates the care of God's people more The separation obviously hurts him deeply. And because of his great love for the body, the next cause of his sufferings is going to cut very, very deeply as well, and that is the suffering of slander from the mouths of people that he has loved deeply. And he experienced this very, very often. It's one thing to be smeared and maligned by people who as a matter of nature should hate you, Lost and dying world, we understand this. Okay, We are an existential threat to them because we are the light, and the light drives out the darkness. So they are fighting for their very lives, you might say, spiritually speaking, or at least to remain dead. But it's an entirely different thing to be slandered by the people who you're currently suffering so greatly for. You are suffering for them, and while you are suffering for them, they are maligning you behind your back and in your absence. And Paul makes very clear that he is suffering for the Corinthians. For example, in chapter 1, verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And yet these same Corinthians, to whom he devoted his life, force him to defend himself against their slander with the likes of 2 Corinthians 7, 2, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. And in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 11, He asked sarcastically, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I wasn't a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so as the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. End quote. He had loved these people for 18 months. And then he had loved them after that, after founding the church and leaving them to Apollos by continuing to write to them and tending to their spiritual needs. But then a group of so-called super-apostles came in. And in order to gain advantage over them, they smeared him and the people who should have known full well that none of that stuff was true believed it hook, line, and sinker. What pain. Next, we consider the suffering of the mortification of the flesh. And this is the suffering of desiring above all else to be altogether holy while still remaining trapped for the time being in your own residual fallenness. And first, let's establish that perhaps no man has ever desired total holiness more than Paul. And that's evident from the prioritization of holiness in general in his writings. For example, therefore, 
Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, 2 Timothy 1, 9. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life, Philippians two fourteen through 16. And but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people, Ephesians 5, 3. And I could go on and on and on. But on a purely personal level, Paul also said of his own sanctification that he died daily in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty one. That corpse named Saul kept trying to reanimate and push the door of the coffin open again. And Paul was standing right over it, shoving it back in on doing everything that he could to put it to death once more every day. And so because perhaps no man desired holiness more, no man suffered more for the want of perfect holiness. And Paul wrote of this suffering too, Romans seven fourteen through 24, and we'll skim. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage into sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. For the good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That right there is rightly defined as yearning to be totally free. We also ought to know from our own experiences that when a Christian speaks of sin in those terms, impassioned in that way, that they're not talking generally. Usually, they have a certain sin and a particular struggle top of mind. Do we not know and understand this, that sin which so easily besets us? We don't war equally against all sins because all sins are not equally as besetting to us. When we speak like that, we're thinking of a certain thing. So what was in particular his greatest sin struggle? On this, we do not need to theorize We have this testimony also in his writings, and that leads us to the final aspect of his suffering that we will be considering today, and that is that Paul suffers from extreme anxiety because of his own sinful heart, but in light of his apostolic duties. I, along with many others, believe strongly that this is actually his thorn in the flesh. Flesh is in the Pauline corpus often a reference to residual remaining sin, and if it is taken as such, and that is applied to that passage, this is clearly his greatest affliction. Anybody who thought that Paul took some kind of pleasure in lambasting the Corinthians as he did should take a closer look, and his motivations will become clear to you, as will the toll that his rebukes took on him. 
2 Corinthians 2, 4 and 12 through 13. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit on account of them. In chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Paul was constantly required by the Lord Jesus to say profoundly difficult things to people that he loved of the kind and nature that they would potentially turn away from him and in fact, many actually did turn away from him. And as a result, actually come to hate him. And it's very evident from his writings that this effect tore him up far worse than 195 lashings on his back. The same sentiment was present in his epistle to the Galatians. Galatians 4, 12 through 15. I beg of you, brethren... I beg of you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness, perhaps, one that's a result of the severe physical trauma that he regularly received, that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you'd have plucked your eyes out and given them to me. So have I become your enemy now by telling you the truth? Indeed he had. Imagine suffering for the saints as he did. Imagine knowing so many of them through your travels and developing these sweet relationships with them. But then because Christ is your king, you have to lose the people that you love. And you really thought that they loved you too. But then it turns out that they neither loved Christ nor you. Imagine how badly you would just want to compromise. Just a little. Just so that you didn't have to risk that pain yet again after experiencing it so many times. Well, Paul never dulled to the pain of being deserted by people he devoted his whole life to, and he also never compromised in response to it either. Sort of thing happened to him constantly, and from his writings it is extremely obvious that every time that it did, it was like having a wound ripped open over and over and over again. Well, at this point, let me rest my case, submitting to you that it's 
evident from the evidence that I have made known to you that Christ did indeed show Saul how much he must suffer for his name. Kept his promise. And also that Saul's suffering for righteousness was perhaps in the history of God's people only eclipsed by Christ himself. But let me remind you that what I have given you so far is only one half of the whole. The rest of what is needed pertains to how exactly Paul's suffering manifests the name of Jesus. And if I could have, I would have put it all together because I do not want misapprehensions to linger. But there are certain misapprehensions that must not linger at all, so I'm going to give you some basics, and I'm going to do this very briefly. It'll be sort of a rapid fire here. So please uh, pay attention, especially to this part. First of all, Understand that Christ is not a pugilist and Paul is not a glutton for abuse. It's not what this is about, not at all. If God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked, as we know that he doesn't in Ezekiel 18.32, he certainly does not delight in the destruction of the dear little lambs that the Lord Jesus has bought by his own blood. Also understand that in no way is Paul's suffering atoning in nature. Paul's not paying for past sins. Christ has done that. Similarly, Paul's suffering is not restitution of any kind paid to Jesus or the church. Again, Christ has done that. And of course, Paul's suffering is not salvific in any sense. Next, although Paul's suffering was immense, it was also certainly less than he deserved, wasn't it? Was Paul only speaking of the Ephesians when he said that they were children of wrath? prior to their conversion or was he not only speaking of or was he not speaking of himself as well indeed he was speaking of both them and him prior to Christ and so very far from this suffering that we've been going through being a lack of grace it is itself a grace in that it is vastly less in degree than what was due him Saul has traded eternal damnation for what will be a couple decades plus of suffering here on earth, profound suffering, but of a very limited kind and much lesser than what he would have experienced had he left this life without Christ. Finally, although Paul was a preacher of the virtue of suffering, he was also a preacher of joy. And in fact, for him, the two concepts were not at odds. Because Christian suffering is always redeemed for the glory of God and the good of his people, they were inextricably linked. Philippians 1, 12 through 20 is an excellent example of this. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ may become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
In the final analysis, Paul was certainly not comfortable. But my, how he was consequential. And we are to learn and truly imbibe that lesson into our souls as well. In response to Satan's constant drumbeat of be comfortable and be without conviction, our constant drumbeat is to be men and women of courage and marked by sacrifice who live as our first century brother did, lives of eternal consequence. Again, if you are a Gentile and you are a believer, you are so because of this man. So his suffering has redounded to your salvation. And if you are here this afternoon and you do not know Christ, we pray that you would let his suffering on that cross for you redound to your salvation now. Because Paul is only a shadow. Christ is the one who cast that shadow. And it is through his suffering alone that men might be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in this time. We thank you for the testimony of our brother. We pray for grace as we continue to apply these things. We thank you that we see through this man that those who are held up by you cannot be cast down by the world that you are so strong that you can use weak instruments who are broken, who have been defiled by this world. You can redeem them and hold them up as trophies of your grace. And we praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.